our prayer this morning, I want to read a prayer to you from a book entitled Gorillas of Grace, Prayers for the Battle. This prayer is titled, There is Something I Wanted to Tell You. Oh God, there's something I wanted to tell you, but there have been errands to run, bills to pay, arrangements to make, meetings to attend, friends to entertain, washing to do, and I forgot what it is I want to say to you. And mostly I forgot what I'm about or why. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Eternal One, there's something I wanted to tell you, but my mind races with worrying and watching, with weighing and planning, with rutted slights and pothole grievances, with leaky dreams and leaky plumbing and leaky relationships I keep trying to plug up, and my attention is preoccupied with loneliness, with doubt, with things I covet, and I forget what it is I wanted to say to you and how to say it honestly and how to do much of anything. Oh God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Almighty One, there is something I wanted to ask you, but I stumble along the edge of a nameless anxiety, haunted by a hundred floating fears of war, of losing my job, of failing, of getting sick, getting old, having loved ones die, of dying myself, having no one else to love me, and of not being sure who I am and that I'm worth very much. And I forget that the real question is that I wanted to ask, and I forget to listen anyway, because you seem unreal and far away, and I forget what it is I have forgotten. Oh, God, don't forget me, please, for the sake of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. My message this morning rests on three words found in the ninth verse of the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 9. And from that single verse, I am going to set before you three words. These three words are words you can stake your life on. These are words you can build your ministry on. These are words that will be a shelter for your family. These are words with which you can face an uncertain future. These are words which nourish and sustain us on the good days of life and on the not-so-good days of life. These are words that are appropriate in the tender moments of living and in the tough moments of living. These three words, I think, are fundamental to who we are and the life we try to live together. As Paul takes pen or begins to dictate this first letter, he's going to deal with a lot of stuff later on. There are divisions in that church. There's a lot of issues. But up front, he, he wants to, I think, provide some encouragement. When he gets to the ninth verse, he says this, God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. God, who has called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, is faithful. If you were to choose three words from those words, which three would you choose? I think you could do a series. I could, I could, I could do a whole series on different word groupings from that because there's so much packed in there. But the words I want us to think about 
are these three, the first and the last two words. God is faithful. God is faithful. I read it from the New International Version. King James Version, with what I grew up with, said, God is faithful by whom you were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The Moffat translation renders the verse like this. Faithful is the God who called you to participate in his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I like Dr. J.B. Phillips' uh, translation of it. God is utterly dependable, and it is God who called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Williams' translation says, God is utterly, entirely trustworthy. Barclay says, you can rely on God. The New English Bible, it is God himself who calls you to share in the life of his Son, Jesus Christ, and God keeps faith. In the message, Peterson says, he will never give up on you. What a cacophony of praise and and strength that is. God is faithful. God is utterly dependable. God is entirely trustworthy. God is ever faithful. God keeps faith. God will never give up on you. God is faithful. The truth is, I'm not going to be able to improve very much on those three words, either in meaning or eloquence. But I'll keep talking anyway. <laughs> God is faithful. What my prayer was early this morning is that simply by setting those words and then thinking with you about them, that somehow the Holy Spirit would strengthen our faith in God's faithfulness. You see, our assurance rests in God's faithfulness. If God is not faithful, if God says one thing and then changes his mind, if God makes a promise and then, oh, forgets about that. I mean, if God is not faithful, we don't have much hope. But the reverse of that is also true. If God is faithful, and He is, then I'm convinced you can face anything and be victorious, and God will see you through it. Why? God is faithful. So I encourage you just to lay hold of that promise. God is faithful. That does not mean that God always responds in every situation as you or I think that He should. We don't see the full picture. It's like watching a tapestry from the reverse side. All we see sometimes is a, is a lot of loose threads. We don't see the pattern that God is there. We have to trust in God's faithfulness. And the truth is, we live in a world that erodes our ability to trust in God. I mean, we want to, and we do, but at the same time, to live at the deep level of this promise takes an extra measure, I think, of grace. When I was a little boy, maybe, I don't know, four or five, can't remember exactly how old I was, my older brother, Michael, and I were playing in the backyard of our house this summer. It was hot. We were having a grand time. And we came racing into the kitchen. You know, kids, they never just walk in. We came racing into the kitchen. And my mother was ironing. And uh, we wanted something cold to drink. So she set the iron down and went to the refrigerator or the, or the sink to get us something to drink. And as we're standing there, my older brother, Michael, looked at me and he said, John, put your hand on that iron see if it's hot. Now, for some reason, I, I, I don't know, I had no sense of not to do that. So when my brother said, put your hand on that iron, I went. I learned two things that day. I learned never touch a hot iron and never trust my older brother. <laughs> the truth is, you don't have to live very long before you get burned, right? Somebody says, trust me in this. Or you buy a product only to get home and, oh yeah, there's the fine print. Or a politician makes a, a promise and somehow it evaporates when 
he or she takes office. What I'm saying is that the world in which we live makes us a bit cautious. We just back up a little bit. We want to reserve judgment. We want to play it safe. And it's hard to live in that world all the time and then move into the world of the Spirit and, and put our full confidence in the faithfulness of God. I mean, we believe it, obviously. But how many times do we want to take the reins and make the decisions rather than trusting God? So let's think about those words in the context of this verse. God is faithful. The first thing I would suggest to you is that the faithfulness of God is rooted in the very character of God. You'll notice that that's a statement as compared to, say, a question. It's a declaration. God is faithful. Paul is not saying, is God faithful? Then he'll try to build a case. He just declares God is faithfulness. God is just, or faithfulness is just part of who God is. If you were to list all of the attributes of God, and there are many, God is, is loving and just and holy and all of those things. Somewhere on that list, if you're going to get at least a, a partial portrait of God, you have to list faithful, because that's just who God is. It's, 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 a, it's both an attribute of God, who He is, and an activity of God, what He does. I guess I've been talking to you about this business of attribute of God already. If you were to look up the word character in the dictionary, one of the first couple of definitions would refer uh, to, you, uh, to a printing term. We see it on uh, computers as well. Every letter, every mark is called a character. And in printing, the, 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 um, the letter would make a, an impression, a mark, leave its mark. And you could type the N, and it's not going to leave an O. It, it's going to leave N. It's just the character of what it is. So the same is true with God. Faithfulness is just the character of God. He's going to stamp your life. He's going to act in ways that will always be faithful to who He is, to His purposes, and for your good as well. So the faithfulness of God is an attribute of God. Uh, as we were singing the hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, just above the hymn was uh, a scripture reading from Psalms, and it said, Thy faithfulness reaches to the skies. Which is to say, your faithfulness fills the universe. It is just pervasive. Another point in scripture, it says, uh, Thy faithfulness is to all generations. And so it is timeless as well. So faithfulness is just who God is. Faithfulness rests in His character the attribute of God, but also the activity of God. That is to say that God will always act in faithful ways to you. You don't have to wonder what God is up to. I mean, I understand we don't always know what's happening, but you don't have to hold your breath and wonder if God's going to be faithful. He always is faithful. When I came to uh, teach at Nazarene Bible College, I moved here from Dallas, Texas, where I'd been living and going to grad school and working in the church and all those things. So the first fall we were here, when we got a, a kind of a long break which I think was one day off uh, uh, on a weekend, we, we decided to go back to Dallas. And so I jumped in the car, Volkswagen, early, early, early on Friday morning and headed down the front range uh, towards uh, Texas. Now, you can drive from here to Dallas in one day if you get up early and you drive all day and get in late. Some of you probably have done that. So Jill and I did that, and we're tooling along and cut across the panhandle of Texas and slip under the Red River there and make our way. And we finally get back into Dallas uh, relatively late at night. I mean, it's... 10 o'clock or something like that. And we were staying with some friends that we knew there in Dallas, and we pulled up to their house and went in. And uh, They were very gracious. Uh, we talked and laughed a little bit, but we were all tired. And so they said, let's just go to bed. We'll get up tomorrow, and we'll run around the city and do all those things. So they gave us their bedroom, the master bedroom in this, in this house. And so we went to sleep very quickly. And I don't know whether you've had this experience or not, but sometimes when you're not at home, 
in your own bed, you don't rest quite as well as you do when you're, when you're there at home. So sometime in the night, I woke up and I remember sitting up in bed and just momentarily not knowing exactly where I was. And, you know, it startles you for just a moment. But then the, the light coming in from the street light, and, and I went, oh, yes, I'm, I'm at uh, Stephen and Anita's. And uh, so I, I, as I lay back down, in the light of that, uh, of that uh, bedroom, I noticed right in front of my face, right there in bed, two tiny little feet. Well, I raised back up, and sure enough, between me and my wife, Jill, was the two-year-old little girl of the family. I guess I had been sleeping better than I thought, because somewhere in the night, now she was already in bed when we arrived, but somewhere in the night she got restless, got out of her bed, came down, went into mom and dad's room, and got into bed with mom and dad, she thought. So here she is, sound asleep, upside down, between us, in the middle of the night. Well, I didn't know what to do. I thought, well, if I go back to sleep and she has a dream, I wake up with two black eyes in the morning. Or, worst case, if I wake her up, think of the trauma of that, in your parents' bed and some strange man is waking you up and she would be in therapy forever. So, I didn't know what to do and I did, well, I did what most of you men who are married would do. I reached over and woke up my wife. (laughs) And I said, Jill, Stephanie's in bed with us. Well, Jill's very calm and so she said, I'll take her back to her room. So, Jill got up and, uh, and, reached over that that bed and began to lift this little girl. Now, I still wondered what would happen when the little girl was picked up. And uh, Jill picked her up, and Stephanie opened her eyes very big. And instinctively, I think Jill began to pat her and whispered in her ear, Stephanie, this is Jill. I'm going to take you back to your bed, okay? And Stephanie said, Okay. And away they went. Jesus said, if you're going to be part of the kingdom, you must have faith as a little child. To trust me in those moments when you think you know where you are, when you think you understand the situation, and in reality, you may not understand it at all. David, the psalmist says, when my mother and father forsake me, the Lord will take me up. God will always act in faithful ways if we will trust Him. We'll be childlike in our faith. But too often we do start wrestling. We want to decide. We want to question. We want to cry out. And that's part of the human uh, personality. But, but uh, Paul is saying to us here, remember, God is faithful. The God who called you into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ, is faithful. It's just who He is. It's the attribute of God. It's the activity of God. second thing the verse seems to indicate to me is that this faithfulness is somehow related or reflected in the call of God. What does the verse say? God who has called you is faithful. There is a relationship, I think, between the calling of God on your life and God's pledge of faithfulness to equip you and enable you to fulfill that calling. It's not as if God calls you and then God takes a seat in the stands and folds his arms and says, let's see how she does today. No. God calls and as calling you, pledges His active involvement in that. For example, God calls us to repentance. What does John say? If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us. Do we have to wonder when we come to confess what God's going to do? 
Oh, I hope he forgives me. We don't have to wonder that if we will trust him. If we'll have faith that God will do what he says he will do. That God will fulfill this calling. So God calls us to repentance and then pledges his grace, his power to forgive, to energize, to bring new life to us as well. God calls us to a life of obedience. The truth is, we can't live that life in our own strength. We can't be good enough in our own strength to have fellowship with God. But what does God do? He enables us through the power of His Holy Spirit to be able to say no to unrighteousness and yes to God. In fact, in this very letter later on, uh, Paul is talking about that. And, and he says this, No temptation has seized you, has taken you, except what is common to man. And God is faithful. <laughs> he will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, He will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Do you see how the verse also is the pledge that God will help you? God who called you is faithful. He's faithful at the beginning when He calls us to repentance. He's faithful in the daily walk as the temptation comes. He's going to be there to help us. God calls us to a life of holiness. To go deep. To make a full surrender. To, to release our will. To receive His Holy Spirit. And God who calls you to holy life will do it. Paul writing in, in 1 Thessalonians that concludes that, that uh, book by saying this. May God Himself the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul, and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then the closing sentence is this. The one who calls you is faithful. And he will do it. What I'm saying is this faithfulness of God is rooted in the very character of God. It's who he is. His attributes, his activities are always in line with his faithfulness. There's not even a shadow of turning with God. It never even enters God's mind to say one thing and do something else. And so, as He calls you to a life of faith, obedience, holiness, a life of service, God is also going to be there to help you. God has laid a call on every person in this room to be active in His kingdom, to find a place of ministry. God is not going to call you and then fail to go with you in that moment. That's why I said these three words are words you can build a ministry on. Because even in the tough days, God is going to be there helping you. Faithfulness of God. It's part of His character. It's reflected in His calling. And I think also it's part of the life of His community. God who has called you into fellowship with one another is faithful. There is this sense of corporate identity in the household of faith. I understand that, that no one can, can have faith for me in the sense of of uh, my own personal salvation. But the Christian life is not a solitary life. It is a corporate life of faith. And the faithfulness of God needs to be reflected in the community, in the fellowship of God. That is to say that, that the church, the people of God, are a canvas on which the faithfulness of God can be displayed so the whole world can see that. Uh, the people of God are a megaphone through which the faithfulness of God is broadcast around. That means that we have to be faithful to one another. We can't say one thing and do something else. We have to be men and women of integrity. Why? Because the God who called us into fellowship is faithful. And that faithfulness must be reflected in our life as well. I read the ninth verse. I did not read, of course, the tenth verse. The tenth verse of this first chapter says this, I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you. 
He seems to say that the fellowship ought to be a place where there is oneness of heart and mind. Do we have differences of opinion? Sure. We have different personalities? You bet. All of that is a strength and not a weakness. But there is still a oneness and a faithfulness that is there. And God calls us to that. I heard a father talking about a little boy. I think the kid was maybe kindergarten. Showed up at the breakfast table. and Everybody's happy getting ready for the day. And this little guy's beaming, but he says to the family, I'm going to be sad today. <laughs> His dad says, what do you mean you're going to be sad today? I'm going to be sad today because when you're sad at school, all the teachers take turns hugging you. <laughs> I'm going to be sad today. Well, I think the world in which we live is looking for a place where they could come and people would embrace them and love them and take them as they are. And they, they come to know the faithfulness of God through the people of God. And that's an awesome responsibility. It's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing God has entrusted to us. The faithfulness of God, it's reflected in the community of God. And that means, I think, our fellowship, our community, our worship needs to be joyful, needs to be upbeat, needs to be, be wholesome in all that we do because we become part of the expression of God's faithfulness. A few years ago, uh, one of America's uh, theologians named Irma Bombeck uh, wrote a piece, and uh, I, I kept it in my file. She writes this. In church the other Sunday, I was intent on a small child who was turning around smiling at everyone. He wasn't giggling, spitting, humming, kicking, tearing the hymnals, or rummaging through his mother's handbag. He was just looking around, smiling at everyone. Finally, his mother jerked him around, and with a stage whisper that could be heard by all, said, Stop that grinning. You're in church. <laughs> with that, she gave him a belt, and with tears rolling down his cheeks, she added, That's better, and returned to her prayers. Irma Bombeck continues, We sing, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, while our faces too often reflect the mood of one who has buried a rich aunt that left her entire estate to her pet hamster. Suddenly, I was angry, she writes. It occurred to me that the entire world is in tears, and if you're not, you better get with it. I wanted to grab this child with a tear-stained face, pull him close to me, and tell him about my God. Because my God is joyful. He smiles. The God who had to have a sense of humor to create the likes of us. I wanted to tell the boy that he's an understanding God. One who understands little children who are restless at church. He even understands my shallow prayers when I implore him, Lord, if you can't make me thin, make my friends look fat. I wanted to tell this boy that I'd taken a few lumps in my day for daring to smile. What a fool, I thought. Here is a woman sitting next to the only light left in our civilization, the only hope of our future. And if he couldn't smile in church, where was he left to go? <laughs> Pretty good theology. In the sense that there ought to be something about the people of God that is winsome and reflects the character of God and the faithfulness of God as well. So for us to be people of living faith, we must hold fast to the faithfulness of God. We must build our life right on the conviction that God is faithful. The character of God, the calling of God, the community of God. God is faithful. A few years ago, the Russian composer named Sergei Prokopia wrote a beautiful score of music, which, interestingly enough, he titled The Prodigal. I don't know where along the way in his life in Russia he ever heard the story of the prodigal son, but that was the name that he gave to this music. It was a ballet suite. It was for the ballet, but it was never performed in uh, Russia. It made its way into the hands of some folks in the United States, and uh, it was set to the stage several years ago 
by a choreographer named George Balanchine. He was putting this ballet on just at the time that Mikhail Baryshnikov defected from Russia to the United States. I mean, quite a, uh, a dancer and, and really an athlete. So he cast Baryshnikov in the role of the prodigal. It was a, really a kind of a dramatic thing. This piece that had not been performed and then Baryshnikov is doing it. It, it, it was really quite a thing. When the curtain goes up on that presentation, the music is very sweet, I guess is the right word. It's very, very engaging. It's very melodic. It, it, there is a sense of, of just the kind of peace all about it. And as the curtain goes up, you see over on this one side of the stage uh, a fellow who comes out and he's dressed in beautiful robe and, and he's standing there looking. Of course, in a ballet, there are no words. It's just movement and the music. And he's there. And then, in a few moments, he's joined by two others. And you get the sense that this is the father and his sons. And there's some sense of family communion and all of that. But as you're watching the scene, the music, almost before you notice it, begins to shift a little bit. Uh, there is a minor note uh, that's interjected. And then it kind of shifts. And uh, there's a bit of dissonance that starts. And sure enough, as the music begins to kind of pull at you, you see the one son evidently the younger son, begin to move away from the father and the older brother. And so you're left to watch this scene of this father and brother and then this boy who makes his way all the way across that long stage. The light is diminished here and the light follows him all the way over. When he gets to this other side, the music is much different than it was at the beginning. It is filled with dissonance and it's loud and it's really not very pleasant. And suddenly there's a whole crowd of people with him there and you get this sense of, of just uh, um, uh, partying and all of that kind of thing going on. It, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a dramatic contrast that, that they create in that scene. When the final act of the, of the ballet begins, the curtain goes up and it is pitch black. And the music is very somber. And the deep bass notes kind of begin to kind of create a, an undertow. And, and you're looking to, you don't see anything. You just hear the music. And then one ray of light casts some illumination on this side of the stage where a moment ago you saw this boy and all of the friends and all the party, but now no one is there except the boy. And he is no longer standing. He, in fact, is lying down as if he has been broken and abandoned. And this music just carries you in and out of that scene. And you think about all of that. <clears throat> and then, as you're kind of caught up there, your light catches that there's light again over here. And sure enough, the father comes back onto the stage and he steps this time up onto a platform so that he's looking out as if he's looking for his boy. And his arms are outstretched. And you are then left with this contrast of this waiting father and this broken boy. I'll tell you, it, it's a powerful scene. And the boy turns his head and looks to the father as if he is remembering better days. And because he now has no strength, the boy, rather than getting up and walking back, he begins to kind of pull himself along the stage. And it is the longest moment you can imagine. They just take all the time that there can be. And all the time this boy is struggling. 
across. The music begins to brighten just a little bit. You have this sense that he's coming back now to his father. And the father is standing, elevated, looking out, arms are open, and you get this sense of growing anticipation. And finally, the boy makes it there, and he looks up into the arms of his father. He has no strength in his legs, so he takes hold of his father's ankles and pulls himself up and then to his father's knees. And then, I suppose, in an athletic move that maybe only Barishnikov or a few others could do, somehow this boy lifts himself into the arms of his father. And the music is sweet. And the scene is lovely. And it, it ends with this beautiful, beautiful reunion. And the curtain comes down. It is a moving scene. But it's wrong. He missed it. In spite of all of it, he missed it. Because the story Jesus tells is not of a father who comes out and says, if you can get here in your own strength, you should have known better, then we'll talk. What's the story Jesus tells? Of a father that gets up every morning and he goes to the property line of his place and he squints in the early light and he looks at every figure that's coming down the road, and he waits to see the figure of his boy, and when he first sees him, what does he do? He runs to him, <laughs> and he picks him up, and he embraces him, and he kisses him, and the boy's confession can't even find space to come out, and he puts a new robe on him, and he demonstrates that regardless of what we have done, God is 